Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Acts chapter 20. And as you're turning there, um, one of the fondest memories that I've had as a youth pastor, many of you know I was a youth pastor before I was a lead pastor, were those times where we would take trips across country. We would go on a mission trip or we would go to a camp and, and we would stay at a hotel. And what would happen would all the youth would end up camping out in my hotel room late into the night, and they'd ask all these weird, deep theological and philosophical questions, and, and there would just be this youthful hunger where the youth would be sitting there wanting to ask all these deep questions. The next thing you know, I'd be begging them to leave my room because I needed to get some sleep. It would be one or two o'clock in the morning, and they just didn't want to leave because they wanted to stay up all night talking about interesting things. And it wasn't the, the official teaching times that I had with the youth that I really treasured. It was those unofficial times, those, those down times, those times where we were just hanging out and talking about the things of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that personally. Maybe it was when you were in college. Maybe it was with you, you were at a retreat or a camp or, where you were staying up late at night with friends or, or staying up late at night and you're talking about spiritual things and you're, you're talking about Jesus and, and it's just getting so exciting and the next thing you know, it's four o'clock in the morning and you've been up all night talking about Jesus. It's a very special thing to have those late night conversations about God in his truth. And that's what we have before us this morning in the book of Acts. We get a glimpse into Paul. Paul and his friends stay up late into the night talking about and worshiping Jesus, discussing spiritual matters. And it's been a while since we've been in the book of Acts. I know we've been to India and we've had different, different sermons here and there, but we're back in the book of Acts and so let me just give you a little review before we, we launch to where we're going this morning. If you remember, Paul had finished his, his second missionary journey. And on his second missionary journey, he got some traveling companions, Silas and Timothy. And, and they planted the church in Philippi. They planted the church in Thessalonica. Paul goes to Athens. He's pretty much scorned in Athens. Um, he goes to Corinth. He stays there a year and a half in Corinth. And then he goes back to his home church in Antioch. And then he launches on his third missionary journey where he goes to a lot of places and spends a lot of time in Ephesus. He spends three years in the city of Ephesus, a very important city. And if you remember, God was doing amazing things in Ephesus. People were getting saved out of the occult. There was this, this major movement of God, but at the same time, there was a riot. If you remember from a few weeks ago, they dragged Paul into the theater. There's this huge riot. And so everywhere Paul goes, what happens? Either revival or riot. Wouldn't you love to walk into a town and have either revival or riot? That's Paul. And so we pick up right after the riot has calmed down, things have ceased, and Paul is getting ready to go to Jerusalem. So let's pick up in Acts chapter 20. Let's look at verses 1 through 12 this morning and pick up where we left off a few weeks ago after that mob came and dragged Paul into the, the theater there in Ephesus. So Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. After the uproar ceased, that's the riot we talked about a few weeks ago, 
Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians and Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Don't let that happen to anybody this morning. Paul went down and bent over him. Taking his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Okay, pretty, pretty funny story here. There are two issues that I want to address with you this morning. The first one we're going to spend a little bit of time on. The second issue we're going to spend a lot of time on and it's going to carry into next week. So here's, they're both in the form of a question. So here's the first question I want us to look at from this text and it's this. What, what do we see as a, a model or a principle of Christian worship in this passage of Scripture? Now, all along, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been seeing the early church in action, and each church has a different personality. What do we see about this gathering, especially at Troas, and in these different situations? What are some principles of Christian worship? And we see four of them emerge from this text. Here's the first. We see here a culture of authentic fellowship. Now, notice how many times the word encouragement or encouraging shows up. In verse 1, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them. Verse 2, he had given them much encouragement. Verse 12, they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Same Greek word there used for encouragement. So Paul's ministry was a ministry of encouragement, of exhortation, of coming alongside and encouraging people. Now let me tell you what this word encouragement means, okay? Because there's a lot of weird views of encouraging out there. It doesn't mean to wave at a distance and say, I hope you have a good time. It doesn't mean to come up and pat someone on the back occasionally and say, I hope you're doing well, buddy. Hope you're doing well, sister. No, the word encouragement here from the original language means to get down into the trenches in someone's life to walk alongside of them to to get down into the muck of their lives and to provide that encouragement that exhortation being highly and heavily involved in each other's lives to get right into the thick of it as a matter of fact you've got some scriptures that paul tells us and and as well as the writer of hebrews about encouragement first thessalonians 5 11 therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. That's a command to encourage one another. Hebrews 3.13, exhort, same word there, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
Hebrews 10, 24-25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging, same word there, one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now you need to realize that life is full of too many tiles, temptations, tribulations, and problems to handle alone. Would you agree? How many of you want to go through life alone? I think I put a quote on Facebook this past week that I came across from John Wesley. It says, The most unchristian thing is an isolated Christian. We were not meant to live in isolation from each other. We need that daily encouragement. I need your encouragement. You don't know what it means to me, but when after a service or when we're meeting somewhere, you come up to me and say, man, I've been praying for you. Or you send me an encouraging email. Or you send me a note in the mail or something like that. You see, a Christ-saturated gospel community of believers is one where we are encouraging one another on a daily basis. That's what Paul was doing. He had a ministry of encouragement. So, so a healthy church is marked by encouraging one another. But secondly... And you may say, well, this is a duh moment. Here's, here's another principle of, a, of Christian worship. You meet on Sunday and you take the Lord's Supper. That's what we're doing this morning. Well, let's look and see what it says there. In verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, the first day of the week, Sunday. Oftentimes in my ministry, I've asked, well, how come we don't worship on Saturday like Jewish people do? The reason we don't worship on Saturday is because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. The early church met on Sunday, the first day of the week. It's called the Lord's Day. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul says, when you gather together on the first day of the week, take an offering. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. It's the Lord's Day. Just a basic point there. We worship on Sunday, and they were breaking bread together. They were taking communion. So part of church life is meeting on Sunday and from time to time taking communion. Okay? Pretty, pretty simple, right? All right, let's move on. That was a pretty easy one. Thirdly, another principle of Christian worship is that there was a hunger for the Word of God. I don't know if you catch what's going on here. They're staying up late at night devouring what Paul has to say. No one's complaining that the pastor's preaching too long. Okay, get that out of my system. Doesn't mean that Paul is preaching a long, boring sermon, although Eutychus falls asleep, okay? So, we get from the, the original language here was more of a dialogue. It was more of a, a give and take. They were staying up late. They had the candles burning. They were gathered in the house. There was a give and take. There was a conversation. There was dialogue. There was, there was this, this great learning of God's word. I'm so reminded of when we went to India. It's still impressed upon my mind. When we went into Sam's home, the, this, this layman, we went into his home in those mornings, Heath and I, and David, the, the, the missionary. And he would gather his family and his friends and they would sit on the floor for two hours just to hear the word of God being taught. And then they would spend another hour in prayer at seven o'clock in the morning. And I've often said that. I'm gonna show up at some of your houses at seven o'clock in the morning and tell you to get out and let's get, get in the couches and, and let's get out the Bible and we'll spend two hours before you go to work that morning. How many of you guys would like to sign up for that? In India, they love it. 
There's a, there's, a, there's a desire, a hunger for the word. Now, I understand something about preaching. I can only preach as long as your bottoms can handle, okay? Most of you can't go longer than 45 minutes. Believe me, I know. You start to see it. And what I'm not saying here is that you have to endure these long sermons from these boring preachers. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is part of the life of a church is there's a hunger for the Word of God. You want it taught. You want it read. You want it preached. There is a hunger for God's Word. Fourthly, another principle of Christian worship we see here is the power of God. Now, here's an interesting little story about a guy named Eutychus, probably a young teenager, They're on the third floor, so those of you up in the balcony, nobody's hanging out on the balcony. Okay, it's good. He starts falling asleep. Eutychus' name means lucky. Wouldn't you like to have a name like lucky? Lucky falls out the window, and what happens? Because Paul's going on so long, the kid dies. He dies. And Luke, being a doctor, would have confirmed that he died. Paul goes down there and stretches himself over Eutychus like Elijah and Elisha did in the Old Testament when they, uh, God used them to raise people from the dead. And Paul prays over him and he's raised from the dead. That's a powerful display of God's power. I said a few weeks ago what freaked me out when we went to one of those villages in India was supposedly a lady had been raised from the dead in one of those villages. Now, I'm not saying that God's going to raise people from the dead all the time, that, that, that that's something that happens the majority of the time. That, that's something that's very unique. But should we be expecting God's power to be on display when we gather together as a church, when we interact as a church? How, how is God's power displayed? Sometimes it's not in these huge signs and wonders. God's power is displayed oftentimes in the conversion of sinners, in lives that are being transformed, in marriages that are being restored. Does, does the world need to see God's power in marriages being restored? Yes, he does. Does God need to see, or does the world need to see God's power in, in families being restored, wayward children being brought back, relationships being restored? That's where God's power shows up in the life of a church. And so we need to expect that. We need to pray for that. And what happens when a culture like this occurs? When there's a hunger for God's word, there's an encouraging culture, there's a fellowshipping culture, there's, there's this, the power of God. What happens? Verse 12, there we're not a little comforted. There's a lot of encouragement. So I would say this. The Lord's Day, Sunday, when you come together as God's family to worship Him on Sunday morning, it should be the most encouraging time of your week. When you come together as God's family, you should receive the encouragement, the motivation, the power to go out and face whatever you guys face Monday through Saturday. And so that's my prayer for us, is that we look at these principles of Christian worship, that we would have a culture of encouragement, a culture where there's a hunger for the Word of God, a culture where the power of God is on display. Now, the second major theme I want us to explore comes in a question as well. We're going to explore it this week. We're going to explore it next week because most of chapter 20 deals with it. Here's the question. What is a positive model for Christian leadership? Now, some of you are saying, I don't care that he's talking about Christian leadership because I'm not a Christian leader. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I'm not a Christian leader. So why do I need to listen to this? You need to listen to this because there's a whole chapter devoted to it, but you need to understand how God has called 
leaders within the church. What are the roles of leaders? What's the responsibility of leaders? How are leaders supposed to lead? Some of you may be future leaders. What is a model of Christian leadership? Now, you guys know I'm not big on alliteration. I don't have a lot of these little fancy sermons that everything starts with the same letter, but today I am. Everything starts with M, just to help us remember. It took me a long time to put this together, all these M words. That's why I don't do them, because they're hard. M, a model of Christian leadership. Let's see Paul's model. We're going to look at Paul's model of Christian leadership this morning. Next week, we're going to look at the elders of Ephesians, the, the guys that he raised up to be leaders their model of Christian leadership. First Paul, next week, the elder. So let's look at Acts 20, 13 through 27. I'm going to kind of skip over 13 through 16 because basically it's Paul just traveling to a bunch of places that nobody can pronounce. So let's just keep moving. And uh, we'll go down to, uh, let's go down to verse 16. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Okay, Paul His missionary journey is winding down. He wants to get to Jerusalem. But one last stop before Jerusalem, he wants to gather at Ephesus, the place where he'd spent three years pouring into these leaders, planning this church, discipling. He spent more time in Ephesus than any other city he went to. He wants to gather these leaders together one last time for a farewell speech, the Ephesian elders. So let's pick up in verse 17. Now from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 17, Paul says he summons or he calls the elders. The word in the original language means it's a solemn assembly. It's a tearful gathering of these men that he's poured his life into. I can only imagine what Paul's going through here. Paul spent three years pouring his life into these men. And now for the very last time, he's going to see them, he's going to gather them, and he's going to give them some final words. I'm sure there was tears It was a serious occasion. There was an intensity. I can only imagine what Paul went through. It would be like me for the very last time gathering our elders together. I'm never going to see you again, elders. I've got one last thing to say to you. I've poured my life into you in this church for the past so many years, and now I'm leaving. This is Paul's farewell speech to these elders. And we see six attributes of Paul's leadership. 
six things, I'll start with M, about Christian leadership. Here's the first. It's the method. The method. What was Paul's method of leadership? It's very, very simple. Preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. Notice in verse 20, he says, in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public from house to house. Verse 25, he says, I know that none among you who have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then in verse 27, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. His is a ministry of preaching and teaching and proclaiming God's truth. That is the primary job description of me as your pastor, to proclaim and preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word. Yes, I do hospital visits. Yes, I do home visitation. Yes, I do weddings. I do funerals. Yes, I do premarital counseling and and biblical counseling and, and I do fellowship and I do all those things and I love to do all those things, but the primary responsibility of me as your pastor is to preach and to teach the whole counsel of God's word. And you may be saying, well, duh, isn't that why we hired you? You're our preacher. Aren't you supposed to preach? And I would say, yeah, it's a duh, but here's the issue. I can't tell you how many churches and pastors are abandoning the preaching of God's word for substitutes, happy little stories that make you feel better about yourself, sermonettes for Christianettes that maybe last 10 minutes and give you little tips on how to live. We've got the seeker-sensitive movement. We've got the emerging church movement. We've got the prosperity movement. We've got any other movement that's getting away from this book and trying to do everything they can to grow churches by something other than God's word. God is not going to grow this church without anything other than the unadulterated word of God. And it's the whole counsel of God's word. That's why I preached from Malachi about five years ago. Anybody ever want to preach from Malachi? I may preach from Haggai just to say I did it. Haggai, Jeremiah, Ephesians. We preach Genesis through Revelation, the whole counsel of God's word. We need a steady diet of the whole counsel of God's word. Not just a hobby horse that I'm comfortable with, not just topical sermons that, 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 that I'm comfortable with. Sometimes when we preach the whole counsel of God's word, I have to deal with things that I'm not that familiar with, and it forces me to deal with the text so that I can give you guys a whole steady diet of God's word. So that's Paul's method, preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God's word. What's his manner? Secondly, what's the manner in which he did it? Notice twice in verse 20 and verse 27. Verse 20, he says, I did not shrink. I did not back down. I was not timid. In verse 27, he says it again. I did not shrink. I did not back down. Okay, what's Paul's manner of preaching? You guys know Paul. Boldness. He's not timid. He's not going to back down. He's going to not be politically correct. He's going to step on toes. Guess what? Newsflash. When a pastor stands up and preaches the whole counsel of God's word, yours and my toes will be stepped on. Let me just do a a show of hands here this morning. In the seven years I've been pastor, how many of your toes have been stepped on by my sermons? Raise your hands, please. Thank you. And I have to deal with this for like weeks before I preach it to you, so my toes have been stepped on before I even step into this pulpit. Part of the manner in which we preach is with boldness. 
you don't want an evangelifish, mamby-pamby, wimpy pastor up here who never offends and says nice things to make you all feel happy. You don't need that. You need what you cannot get from the world, the whole counsel of God's word. What did Paul say in 2 Timothy chapter 4? He, he charges Timothy, by the way, who became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul says this, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's the world we're living in right now. We've got an itching ear culture that wants to hear what they want to hear, but they don't want to hear the word of God. Go back, I challenge you, go back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and see how many times Jesus stepped on people's toes. Jesus was a preacher with authority. So what's the method of a Christian leader? Preaching and teaching. What's the manner? Boldness. But thirdly, what's the message? What are we to be preaching? Now, probably... Paul preached hundreds of messages in Ephesus. And he doesn't give a laundry list here of everything that he preaches in those three years that he was in Ephesus. But he distills it, he crystallizes it into what is the main message that a gospel leader, a Christian leader, is to be preaching. Look at verse 21. That's the message. Verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, here's the message, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The message is repent and believe in Jesus. Repent, turn away from your sin, hate your sin, grieve your sin, abandon your sin, forsake your sin, and turn and trust, believe, place all of your faith in Jesus Christ. What were the very first words out of Jesus' mouth when he came in his public ministry? Does anybody know? Mark chapter 1, 14 to 15, the first recorded words out of Jesus' mouth except for maybe when he was a 12-year-old, when he was teaching in the, in the temple. We don't know exactly what, he, what he's teaching, but in his public ministry, here's the first words of Jesus' mouth. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. He's preaching, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What's his message? Repent and believe in the gospel. Same message that Paul said, repent and believe in God. Jesus. Now, there's a whole bunch of other things that we could be preaching and teaching, but ultimately, our call is to teach repentance and faith. Not just for the very first time. Some of you in this room, for the very first time, need to repent. You know that you're lost. You know you're without Christ. You've come into this room, and you're not a Christian, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. The Bible says you need to repent, turn from that sin, and place your faith in Jesus. Those of us that have done that, we still need to continue to repent. We still need to continue to turn from our sin, and we still need to daily embrace Jesus as our treasure. So the ultimate message is repent from sin, believe in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, and you've never repented of your sin, and you've never believed in Jesus, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And that's what we should be teaching when preaching with everybody that we come in contact with, whether it's a well in India or whether it's with your next door neighbor or your best friend. Are you urging people to repent and believe in Jesus? Okay, fourthly, his message was repent and believe. His manner was boldness. His method was preaching. Fourthly, what's his motive? What's the motive behind why Paul did this? 
Was it impure? Was it self-aggrandizing? Look at verse 19. Notice what Paul says. Serving the Lord with all humility. Paul's motive is to be a humble, gentle man of integrity. His motive is to serve God's people with humility. Notice verse 26. Verse 26, he says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Paul had pure motives. He wasn't sharing the gospel to make money, to become popular, to gain power, to be prestigious, to manipulate. That was not his mode. Robert Murray McShane said this, It is not great talents that God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. Paul doesn't... I don't stand up here and preach because I want to get a lot of money. If I wanted money, I would, I would probably do something different. If I wanted popularity, I would do something different. Because if I get popular in preaching, I'm probably not preaching the right message. Because if everybody likes what I'm saying, I'm probably not saying the whole counsel of God's word. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.2. This was Paul's motive. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's got a pure motive. He doesn't want to manipulate. He doesn't want to coerce. He wants to serve God with humility. Okay, here's number five, for lack of a better M word. Messiness. What happens when you preach the gospel boldly when you do it firmly, when you don't gather itching ears around you, you don't do it for popularity, you preach the whole counsel of God's word, it gets messy. How many times has Paul gotten himself into trouble? Look at verse 19. <clears throat> what does Paul say about the mess he was in? Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. We've been looking at over the past few months, all the plots against Paul, all the things that have happened to him. Stoned, left for dead, ran out of town, maligned. It gets messy. And then notice what happens. Verse 22 and 23. How would you like the Holy Spirit to come and say this to you? Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit's prompting me. The Holy Spirit's urging me. I can't say no to the Holy Spirit. I've got to be obedient to God. And the Holy Spirit said to me, by the way, when you go to Jerusalem, what awaits you? Notice what the text says there, imprisonments and afflictions. How would you like to be told by the Holy Spirit, oh yeah, the next thing that's in line for you, Paul, are more afflictions and imprisonments. Thank you, Jesus. That's what I signed up for. That's exactly what Paul signed up for. God had called him to be a minister to the Gentiles, and he knew that the sovereign call of a holy God on his life, when he began to do what God called him to do, it's going to get messy. Let me just tell you something. If you want to be faithful to God's word and the world in which we live, it will get messy. You don't want to purposely, you know, just bring stuff on you, but when you stand up for truth, it's going to get messy. And especially if you're, if you're a young pastor or you're, a, or you're a person here that feels called to the ministry or, or you're called to Christian leadership and you have these great ideas that I'm going to preach to thousands of people in the stadium and everybody's going to love what I have to say and, and I'm just going to be this great preacher, let me shatter that delusion right now. The life of a preacher is life of suffering. Look at every preacher in the Bible and see that it came with suffering. Christian leaders need to prepare, be prepared for life to get messy. 
finally, probably most importantly, we see Paul's mission or his mission statement. If there was ever one mission statement that Paul had that's crystallized in one passage of Scripture, it's in verse 24. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. What is Paul's mission? What is Paul's heartbeat? What drives Paul? Verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, my life means nothing. I don't give my life weight. I don't give my life value. As a matter of fact, I'm going to lose my life in order to gain Christ. My life is not what's important. It's not my agenda. It's not my timetable. It's not my kingdom. It's not my will be done. I am living for a greater goal, and that is the glory of Christ. He echoes what Jesus said has to happen if you're going to be a true disciple of Christ. What did Jesus say in Luke 9, 23 through 25? Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And that's what Paul says, I've lost myself. I forfeited myself. I've given up myself. I said no to self. I've taken self off the throne and I've come and said, Christ, it's all about you. I'm denying myself. I'm taking my Christ. My life means nothing. Everything is about you, Lord Jesus. It's all about your glory. And Paul says, there's one thing. There's just one thing I want to do, Jesus. Look at what the text says, that I may finish the course. I want to finish my ministry. I don't want to putter out. I don't want to morally fail. I don't want to die on the wayside. I want to finish. I want to reach the finish line. And Paul says that in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. You hear the passion of Paul in in verse 12 through 14 of Philippians 3. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's heartbeat. I want to finish the race. I want to finish the prize. I want to reach the finish line. And I know that the finish line is Christ. He is my glory. That's what I want to do. And what did Paul say at the end of his life? Paul is about to be in prison. He's about to die. Second Timothy are the last words that Paul has. We have recorded in Scripture. What does he tell Timothy, his protege, in 2 Timothy 4, 6-7? Would that we could all say this at the end of our lives. Paul says this, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've done it. I've wholeheartedly and passionately finished what God called me to do. It's not about my life. It's not about my desires. It's not about my glory. It's not about my wishes. It's not about anything related to me. As a matter of fact, afflictions await me and prisons await me, but I want to finish the race. And I know that what waits for me at the end is far greater than anything I'm going to experience in this life because what waits for me at the end is the prize, Jesus Christ himself. He's my glory. 
then what does Paul want to do? Paul says, there's one thing I've got to do before I finish this race. What's the one thing? The very last phrase there in verse 24. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. To testify. That word in the original language means to make a solemn testimony. Like you're in a courtroom. You put your hand on the Bible and said, I swear to tell the whole truth. What's it? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Paul says, my goal in life is to solemnly give testimony, to preach, to proclaim, to tell other people about what? What does he say there? The gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God. I want to tell people that there is a God in heaven who created all things, and he has a son named Jesus Christ who left the glories in heaven, came and was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life that none of us could live, died on a cross, absorbed God's wrath, cried out as finished, offers forgiveness, was put in a tomb, rose again three days later, ascended up to heaven, is at the right home, right hand of the throne of God he's going to come back in glory and he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in this king of kings and lord of lords that's what I want to tell everybody is that your desire to testify to the gospel of what the grace of God why is it a gospel of grace none of us in this room deserve God's love None of us in this room can earn God's love. None of us can merit God's love. We can't hope that our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds and somehow at the end of our lives, God's grades on a curve and he says, oh, Sean Cole's such a great guy. I think I'll let him into heaven because yeah, he he got straight A's in high school and he did a few good things here and there and oh yeah, he went on a mission trip and oh yeah, Sean's a good guy. Let's let him in. None of us are worthy of the love of God. All of us deserve hell. All of us deserve wrath. None of us can earn or work for or, or do anything to merit the love of God. But here's the, here's the scandal of grace. And it really is a scandal. God dares show love to rebels who have spit in his face time and time again. God loves those that hate him. God sent Jesus to die for those that would never in a million years bow their knee to Jesus. God reaches down from heaven and saves sinners by grace. He saves sinners by grace. We cannot save ourselves. So here's the question this morning, this free gift of grace. Have you experienced the gospel of grace? Have you experienced, not do you know about it, there's there's one thing to know about the gospel of grace, there's nothing to experience the gospel of grace. Has it captivated your heart? Has the love of Christ flooded your heart? Have you come to the end of your rope where you realize, I'm a sinner, I'm destitute, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, I cannot do anything to earn my salvation, I cast myself solely at the mercy of Christ alone, he's the only one that can save me, I call upon the name of the Lord, and the promise is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you received, have you experienced, have you confessed your need for Jesus, have you experienced the gospel of grace? And if you have not experienced the gospel of grace, what better day than today to bow your knee and wave the white flag of surrender and say, Lord Jesus, today I'm confessing you as Savior and Lord. Today I experience your grace. Today I want the free gift that you offer in your Son, Jesus Christ. Repent and believe and experience the gospel of grace. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper I can think of no better 
anthem to have echoing in our hearts and minds than the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace. And in the quietness of this moment, I would ask that you would just spend some time evaluating your life in light of the gospel of grace. Have you repented and believed in Jesus alone for salvation? If you never have, right now is a perfect time to call upon his name. If you have repented and believed, and you are a believer, most of us in this room are probably Christians. Have you gotten over the gospel of grace? Do you testify about the gospel of grace? Do you count your life as of nothing in order to win Christ? Or are you in charge? Is it about your kingdom and your glory and your plans and your might and everything about you? Or have you just said, Lord Jesus, it's not about me, it's all about you and your glory. Spend a few moments this morning in silent prayer as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, asking the Lord to do a work of grace in your heart this morning. Father, we bow before you in the quietness of this moment, knowing that our only hope in this life and in the next life is your son, Jesus. And Lord, may we be like Paul, who said it was his life's passion, his life's ambition, not to count his life as of any value, but that he would press on to knowing you, Lord Jesus, as his prize, that he would treasure you above all, and that he would testify to this gospel of grace, that, Lord Jesus, your cross and your grace and your resurrection and your power would always be on his lips, and he'd always want to testify, tell others about the grace of God in the gospel. Lord, may we be people that have experienced that deeply, And not only have we experienced it deeply, but that's encouraged and motivated us to share it widely with everyone that we come in contact with. How can we but share when we've been saved from such sin? Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Oh Lord, would you do a work of grace in our hearts this morning that we would see the glories of Christ, we would bow to him, and he would be our all in all. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.